is the finale of a series that we started a couple of weeks ago called The Bad Boys of Easter. Some of you are saying, I've never heard that before in Easter. Maybe you haven't. Um, we often at Easter time, you know, we, we, uh, we acknowledge Palm Sunday, which is a week before Jesus was, was executed on the cross. Uh, we call this Palm Sunday, and he, the scripture says he goes into Jerusalem and would enter there, uh, you know, the last time, as it were, uh, before his crucifixion, and they've got these palm branches that they're spreading all over the place, and they're expecting this triumphal king to, to come, a triumphant king, and so they say, Hosanna in the highest, and all of that, and this we call Palm Sunday. So sometimes on Palm Sunday, we talk about that, and then on Good Friday, which was, what, two days ago, we talk about the death of Jesus on the cross, and then today, on Easter Sunday, we talk about the resurrection, and we do, and that's fine. Uh, but I thought this year we would do it in a bit of a non, non-traditional way and look at th- three people. These are three men who interacted with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus for all intents and purposes, touched Jesus, and did not believe and uh, rejected the message that Jesus gave, re- rejected uh, his offer of salvation. And you say, man, that's pretty depressing to talk about at Easter time. But we find when we look at these, these three bad boys that there's a little something of them in each one of us. And we can learn from them and we can see ourselves sometimes in, in their lives. So the first bad boy that we talked about was uh, a Caiaphas. Uh, or we know him as Joseph Caiaphas from ancient history, and this is the man who put Jesus on trial. Uh, this is the man who who tore his his robes uh, when Jesus was was calling himself the Son of God. And this is a man who said blasphemy. You know, he's very now a very famous man because he's the only uh, man in Bible history. You look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He's the only man whose whose casket we have found, and in fact, whose bones we have found. He's the only man in in Bible history. Uh, who can say that. I've stood in front of that casket myself, and it's quite an impressive thing to do. But he's the man who put Jesus on trial. And we looked at, at his life, and we saw how he married into this dynasty, and who the high priest was, and what the, the power, and the authority, and the money that he had, and the control over everything that he had. And we saw that with Caiaphas, it was, he had all these things, and they were his. It was, it was his temple. It was his nation. And here you have Jesus who's coming on the scene. And Jesus has all these crowds and the followers and people love to hear him. And, and this, this shakes the stability of Caiaphas and company and their power and their authority and their control and their temple and their nation. And Caiaphas refused to, to give that up and re- didn't want all of this to change. And yet, not even a generation later, the temple in Jerusalem destroyed, never been rebuilt. Caiaphas deposed as the high priest. And we saw that when we, when we don't submit things to God and when we want to hold on to things and not surrender them to God, uh, ultimately, we're holding on to things that we're starting to lose anyway. 
And we talked about, you know, surrendering to God is a, is a good thing. Not always an easy thing, but a good thing. Just a, an application for you, because some people have been talking about it. Uh, there are about a dozen people in this room, in my view, and you need to be baptized in water. Just a practical thing. Uh, water baptism is, a, is an outward sign that you, in fact, believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're... You're super spiritual. It doesn't mean you have a little ring around your head now. It doesn't mean that. It means you made a decision to follow Christ and you show that publicly. That's one act of surrender and, and obedience to God. And some of you, I, I can think of about a dozen of you as I look out over the room today, you need to be baptized in water. We're going to have a baptismal event uh, this summer. All right, so stay tuned, uh, but that's just a practical thing for you. So we looked at Joseph Caiaphas, his first bad boy of Easter, and then we looked at the notorious Judas Iscariot, right? Everybody knows the name Judas, don't you? Do you have you ever met anybody named Judas? I know one person said that they did. It's a very rare name. We don't name our kid uh, after the one who sold out Jesus himself, you know, for 30 pieces of silver. We don't name our children after this fellow, and he's a notorious bad boy of Easter. But we saw in looking at his life, we saw that this man had expectations of who the Christ would be, who the Messiah would be, that would be very common expectations. They wanted Jesus to be a, a conquering king. They wanted Jesus to liberate the Jewish people from the Roman tyranny. They wanted, uh, as we said uh, last time, Hanukkah on steroids, you know, the, the festival of liberation of the temple that took place, you know, some 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. So they wanted a powerful, powerful ruler. And Judas, who we also learned was a, a petty thief, used to steal money from the offering. Uh, Judas wanted Jesus to be this powerful, conquering, uh, uh, he wanted to, him to, to trigger a rebellion. And so it's likely that Judas had this whole arrangement with Joseph Caiaphas and the, and the chief priests and uh, to, to have Jesus arrested to probably trigger this rebellion. And when it didn't happen and when Jesus didn't resist the cross and when Jesus didn't resist all these things that were happening to him, Judas was filled with remorse and regret and, of course, he took his own life. And we saw that the application there, when we try to use God as a means to our own end, when we want to kind of say, well, God, I've done this and this and this for you, what are you going to do for me? Uh, I go to church, I tithe, I read the Bible, I pray, I'm a nice guy, I'm faithful to my spouse, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to do for me, God? I've done all this for you. What have you done for me lately? And sometimes we use God as a means to our own end, Judas Iscariot. And when we do that, our relationship with God's on a weak foundation. When it's on a weak foundation, we bear the responsibility. But when our relationship with God, again, is based on surrender to him and trust in him, then God is responsible for the results, not us, which is a totally different uh, game to play. So today we're going to talk about the third bad boy of Easter, and he has no name. He's the unnamed criminal in the Easter story. Uh, he is not presented to us with any name. 
uh, and he is a criminal. Uh, we're told in, in the scripture, if we look into the gospel stories, which you can read in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in your, in your New Testament, really easy reading. They kind of fit together like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. You've got four different accounts of some of the same stories of Jesus. And the Easter story, you've got four clear accounts that you can read. And we read about this man, and he is a, a robber. Uh, Matthew tells us and Mark tells us. Luke tells us he is a criminal, and we don't know his name, uh, but we know that he's, you know, a bad boy. Have any of you ever met a thief? Like a thief as in that's what they do. They're a thief. Have any of you met a criminal before, i.e., that is what I do. I am a criminal, or you've ever known a criminal. I mean, you've ever been a criminal Okay, so how about this? Have you ever had something stolen from you? You ever been robbed before? Okay, how did that feel? Not too good. I remember when, when we were robbed as a family about 10, 12 years ago, we got home one Sunday afternoon, happened to be at church, and we got home and somebody had broken into our house, you know, went into the rooms and rifled through everything. It was a professional criminal, a thief. Well, this is who this man was, and uh, this is what he did, and he must have been more than just a petty thief because he himself is on death row, and today uh, in the story is the day where he's going to die. So he is going to be executed on a, on a Roman cross, face the death penalty, and one of the people who he's going to face the death penalty with is Jesus himself. Maybe they were in the same little holding area before they went out to, to the place of the skull, as it's called in Scripture, or Golgotha, to be executed publicly. Now, we do executions very, very rarely in North America. It's very, very rare. Some places in the U.S. do it. They don't do it in Canada anymore. But back then, it's not the same, okay? When they executed people, they did it in public for everyone to see. Uh, and they also did multiple, so you had a multiple execution day happening on what we call Good Friday. Uh, you have this criminal and his, uh, his counterpart, which we'll, we'll look at him in a few minutes. But you have this criminal and you have Jesus, and they are going to be executed. Now, in a, in a public execution of this nature, you have a number of things going on because it's outdoors and everybody is going and watching. And today, or on that day, Good Friday, you have a superstar who's being crucified, someone who's got a whole lot of attention, someone who's like a stick of dynamite politically and in the religious culture, and that is this Jesus of Nazareth. So you likely have a larger amount of people watching to see this execution take place. And you have a number of things going on there. If you read the gospel story in Matthew, uh, the, these people are now on the crosses. And it says, those who passed by hurled insults at him. 
the him being Jesus. This is what they would do with these people who were crucified. They would go up to them and they would insult them. They would, they would spit at them. They'd be very cruel and very nasty to them. The Romans uh, did this kind of execution because they wanted people to see this is what happens when you break our laws. This is what happens when you defy Rome you will be put up on these crosses. So these people go up to Jesus and they hurl insults at him and they say things to him in a mocking kind of tone. Uh, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Uh, just for, uh, for the skeptics in the room, just, just two seconds with you as a, as a fellow skeptic, uh, that little accusation, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, this is something that Jesus said earlier on in his ministry. And he, he, he said, Re, uh, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. You can read that in John chapter 2. And then later on here at his execution, they're taking that phrase and they're quoting it out of context. And they're saying, oh, yes, you're going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Sure. Uh, you're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. Sure. You're hanging on a cross now. Uh, it's just an interesting point of information there because the quote that's being done, this is in Matthew and Mark, they're quoting something that they didn't even write about. Uh, John wrote about it. And so it's, it's a really interesting phrase because it shows that Jesus must have really have said that. Anyway, they're mocking him. They're saying, oh yeah, you're the powerful one who's going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Sure. Save yourself. Uh, come down from the cross. Remember, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the idea of a Messiah, a savior being crucified on a cross was a foreign thought. They did not think that the Messiah was going to end up on a cross. They thought he would conquer the powers of evil Rome. They're saying, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Um, in the same way, it says, the chief priests who were under Joseph Caiaphas, the teachers of the law, the elders, these are, again, these type of teachers who would teach the Bible, they would mock Jesus again. And they would say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now again. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. All said in a mocking tone, in a negative, sarcastic, skeptical, unbelieving tone. And then you see this unnamed criminal join in. And it says, in the same way, this man heaped insults on him. Matthew 27 and 44. In the same way. So here you have Jesus and they're ganging up on him. And even this criminal on the cross is, is mocking him and heaping insults on him, it says. And he says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Speaking of the other criminal who we'll get into in a moment. Save yourself and us if you're the Christ. And this, is the, this was the view that he had. This was the view that the, that the unbelieving crowd had. Very negative, very, very harsh, very, very unbelieving. And we can look at this, at this criminal on the cross and, and we can say, wow, you know, uh, why is he like that? How is he? What's he, what's he thinking? Uh, let me tell you the critical mistake that this man makes. And it's not that he's a thief. It's not that he's a criminal. It's not that he's a bad boy in that sense. 
But he's making the mistake that many, many of us make today when we approach the idea of belief in God and we think that that God is, is holy and all-powerful and all of those things. And, and we start thinking about that. We can make the same mistake as him. And the mistake is this. As life is, God is. And this was the view that that criminal had. Because he was a hardened criminal. He'd probably been a criminal for a long, long time to end up on a Roman cross. And so he looks at life in this moment while he's hanging there, uh, uh, in his, in a, taking his last breaths, as it, as it were, breathing as a, for the last time. You know, he's, he, it's like the, the executions of the modern day. You know, you say to people, any last words? So these are his last words. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And this mistake was, for him, as life is, God is. What did God ever do for me? I had to steal and be a criminal just to survive, you know, hypothetically speaking. Nobody, nobody really likes being a criminal per se. You know, oftentimes people who steal and people who get into that type of lifestyle, it's probably because they have to, uh, and then they end up perhaps being good at it, and then that's what they do. Uh, but people don't say, oh, I just I want to be a criminal when I grow up. That's what I want to be. Most people don't say that, okay? This man is a criminal, and his view of life is as a, he's looking at it as a criminal. And you're going to tell him that the Christ, the Messiah, is on a cross next to him? Oh, he's going to say, yeah, sure. Tell me, tell me another one, right? As life is, God is. My life has been hard. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to lose my life in a matter of moments, there's going to be a Roman executioner who's going to come up to me and break my legs so that I'll die of asphyxiation on this cross. Uh, my body's going to be thrown into a common grave. You, you, and you're telling me there's a God? Uh, let, him, let him come down off of his cross and save himself and save me if there's a God. As life is, God is. This is the mistake that he makes. And it's a mistake that many, many of us make today. We interpret God through whatever's going on in our life. Wow, that's very unfair, if I may say. Your circumstances in life may be really, really difficult. And if you say, well, as the circumstances are, so God is. I mean, you'll, you'll never even give God a chance if that is the way that you interpret him. Uh, God reveals himself through the scripture, uh, through his word, through his son, through what he did for us. But if you think that, well, as my life is, that's a, a pure reflection of God, you're going to be very, very disappointed, my friend. Uh, uh, the promise of the scripture is not that your life is somehow going to magically get better if you believe in Jesus. You know, believe in Jesus, poof, a little switch goes off, and all oh, my life just gets better. Oh, that's great. Everybody should become a Christian. How many of you who are Christians in the room, you know that that's not what happens? Some of you, you flipped the switch of faith a long time ago, and your life got worse when you flipped the switch. You've been through all kinds of things. You've been through, you know, many dangers, toils, and snares. You know what I'm saying? And you've been through all kinds of things, and you'd say, no, no, no. It's not that my life has somehow gotten magically better. The, the promise of the scripture is that you can face life with Jesus in your life. 
It's not that your life is going to get magically better all of a sudden. But now you have the Son of God himself. You have God incarnate who has come to live in you in a, in a relationship type of sense where you can face the heat that life brings to you with Christ in your corner. And that changes everything. That changes your perspective. That changes your understanding of difficulty and suffering. It changes everything. Um, Jesus said, uh, in this world, you will have peace and quiet and a bed of roses. No, he didn't say that. He said, in this world, you will have lots of money and lots of friends. And no, he didn't say that. He said, in this world, you will have tr trouble. He said, you'll have trouble in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And this really is the message of Easter. Jesus said, come to me, you, uh, you who are weak and you, are, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you, which is like an animal harness. You take my yoke upon you, and you learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You can go through life yoked, harnessed to Jesus himself. And friends, you don't have to carry him. He carries you. Take my yoke upon you, he said. So there's no promise of, of pleasure necessarily in your circumstances. But this man, and understandably so, says, as life is, God is. Oh, the Messiah is being crucified next to me. Oh, yeah, tell me another one. Don't interpret God necessarily through your life and through your circumstances. This is the lesson that we learn from the third bad boy of Easter. God bless you. You are dismissed. Oh, I'm only kidding with you. You say, what kind of morbid message is that on Easter Sunday? I mean, look at the picture of this guy. You're going to leave us with this on Easter Sunday? What kind of crazy, wacko church is this? This is the weirdest Easter Sunday message I've ever heard. Well, those of you who know the story a little bit, you know there's a happy ending to the story. The story isn't over yet because there's another criminal in the story, isn't there? And this criminal has a change of heart doesn't he? Jesus is crucified in stereo, if, as it were, just to, you know, help you understand. He's in the middle, and you've got one criminal on one side, and you've got one criminal on the other side. So he's got these guys in stereo. And we look at the, the first criminal, and we see his, his path, but then we see there's something different about the second criminal. And in this guy's particular case, um, he has a change of heart. Everything looks the same until a, a certain moment. So uh, Matthew and Mark say that both of these guys mocked Jesus. Both of them did as the chief priests and everybody else, and they mocked him, and they said he saved, himself, he saved others, let him save himself. It says both of them did. But yet this other criminal... Only in Luke's account, there's a detail that's really, really important uh, that we often skip over that we see could have led to some kind of change of heart in this man, and the, the faith switch was flipped on. 
And while I cannot prove it to be true, I think it's reasonable to assume that it's something that Jesus said that did something in this man's heart. Now, in many of the, of the, the movies that we see or television specials or documentaries, um, you know, we see these crucifixion scenes. Have any of you ever seen them on TV, movies, whatever? You go, to a, you go to a church and they try and do a crucifixion scene, you know, and they build a cross and they get some, some guy who's willing to, you know, not wear too much clothes and get crucified on a cross. And, you know, we mimic these things and we try to figure out what did it look like. And so most of these movies, and TV series and all this stuff, you've got Jesus and he's like a hundred feet in the air, you know, on this really, really long cross and they got to hoist him up with these ropes and everything and, you know, and everybody's looking up like this at him and, you know, they give him the, they give him the wine vinegar like this on a big sponge and this is probably not the way that it happened. Because in the text, we see that the people came up to Jesus, and they mocked him, and they scoffed him. He's probably more at eye level. He's probably maybe two, three, two, three feet off the ground. We do see some evidence in archaeology, a little bit, tiny bit, and in some of the ancient writings that these, these crucifixions would take place in such a way that the crowd could go up to the, the victims, and they could go and they could say things to them, and they could go and they could interact with them to intimidate them and to mock them. And this is really what we see in the gospel story. And so when Jesus is there in the center and he's got one of these guys on his left, one of these guys on his right, they probably can hear each other very well. They can hear what's going on. And you have to understand in a, in a crucifixion, this is a very violent, this is, a, this is an awful, awful, shameful way that people died. It, I mean, even the word cross back in the ancient world, people didn't use because it was so grotesque. It was so awful. Nowadays, we wear crosses on our necks. I mean, back then, it would be the same thing as wearing an electric chair around your neck. They would look at us and say, you're all strange. You wear crosses on your necks. Okay, we didn't do that back in the day that Jesus was crucified. Nobody wanted to talk about crosses. It was like a bad word. It was such an awful thing. And in, in, in the case of these people who would be nailed to these things, we're talking about driving nails through somebody's hands, okay, and somebody's feet. We found one uh, piece of evidence of this, a crucified man uh, back in the first century, and he's, he's still got the seven-inch nail lodged into his ankle, okay, it's seven inches long. So they're driving nails into these people into a piece of wood, and they hoist these people up. They gave them a little seat to sit on. Uh, that's because they would, they would try and cheat uh, death, as it were, because their, their lungs would, would constrict, and they'd have trouble breathing, and they'd have to push themselves up into the air to get more oxygen into their lungs so that their vital organs would stay alive, and they'd try to cheat death. And we have examples in the ancient world of, of crucified victims lasting for days on these crosses, you know, <gasps> trying to breathe and trying to, you know, stay alive. It's just an awful, awful way to die. And so you have these three men, really, not just two, but three. And this one, he seems to have a change of heart. And while I cannot prove it, I think it's because of one word that Jesus said. It's only in Luke's account. And it's only Luke who records the change of heart in this man. And the word that Jesus said 
which in my view, again, I can't prove it. But this would be a word that if this man heard it, it would have jarred his thinking completely. He would, if he believed what Jesus would, had said there, it would have taken him in a different direction. And the word that Jesus said is a simple word. It's the word father. Father. So Luke 23 and 34, and this, pardon the, you know, the, I know it's Easter Sunday and all that. You say, well, we should have done that on Good Friday. Just sit tight with me. Okay, you, you've got, in, in the case of Jesus, you have a man who goes through, a, you know, there's a little bit of extreme in his case. Because we're told that, that Pilate, after he sentenced him to execution, the whole company of the Roman guard gathers around him. They don't do that for the other criminals. They gather around Jesus in the place called the Praetorium. And they mocked him there. And they, they put a, a robe on him as if he was a king. And then they ripped it off him. And then they, it says that they beat him in the head with a, with a staff over and over again. And they took a crown that was made out of thorn bushes. And they drove it into his scalp. And they beat him and they pummeled him like the whole company of the Roman guard. You're, you're see, this is a man who's beaten to a pulp before he takes on a crucifixion. I mean, he's so, he, his, his body is in so much distress, he's not even able to carry the, the cross up to the hill, we read. Somebody else has to carry it. I mean, you have to understand, he's pummeled, it's a mess. And if you'll excuse the, the graphic description, essentially, Jesus is a bloody mess on the cross. It is an absolute grotesque mess that we would be looking at. And that kind of, of pictures it. And he's having a conversation with these two men kind of in stereo. You've got one mocking him on the other side. You've got one mocking him on this side. But seems to have a change of heart. Why? And maybe he heard Jesus say this word, Father. Father. Now, that's just a word that can evoke a lot of emotion, period. You know, some of you, when you think of the word father, you've got all kinds of emotion, sometimes good and sometimes bad, when you think of your, your biological father. Uh, those of you who come and see that movie, you're going to look at the word father in a very, very different way uh, after you watch that movie. Uh, so Jesus says this word. And it's, it's interesting because Luke, in the same, same book, the book of Luke, the first time that Jesus would use this word in referring to God as his father, as his personal father, is when he's 12 years old. You know, when you're, when you're about to die, your life flashes through your eyes, you know? And, and so perhaps Jesus was even thinking of this moment when he said this, we don't know. But when Jesus was 12 years old, Luke tells us that him and his, his parents, they, you know, took the caravan to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, uh, it, it's a, probably a happy time. Uh, this is a major, major holiday for the Jewish people, and Jesus is going to be crucified here on a Passover. And so the, the, Jesus is 12 years old. He's a boy. It's about 20 years before this moment on the cross. And they go for a Passover, and they celebrate the deliverance of the Jews from Egypt and you know, offer the sacrifices and all of that, and then they head home. Uh, but his parents... Mary and Joseph, they, they look around after a couple of days and they say, uh, excuse me, where's our son? Do you remember the story? 
wait a minute, uh, maybe he's back in the city. So back again, back in that day, they traveled in, in caravans. Maybe they would have missed him, whatever. And so they head back into town. They head back into Jerusalem. They head back into the, the temple courts. And they see their 12-year-old son talking with these, these religious scholars and asking them all these questions. And he's 12 years old. And so Mary says, what are you doing? We've been looking all over for you. Your father and I, essentially, have been anxiously looking. We've been worried sick about you. What do you think you're doing? And Jesus says, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? And the scripture says they didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, his, his father, in a natural sense, you could say, Joseph, or his half-father, or whatever you want to call it, you know, is standing there next to him, and Mary says, hey, your father and I have been worried sick about you. What's wrong with you? What are you doing back here? He says, no, no, I had to be about my father's business. He's calling God his personal father, and he's 12 years old. No wonder they, it says they didn't know what he's talking about. So Jesus, he goes through life relatively quiet. Uh, for the next, you know, some 20 years, seems to be a good boy, seems to be growing in the, you know, the family business. His dad's a carpenter. You know, he's submissive to his parents, he, but he, he's largely undetected until about the age of 30. And then he bursts onto the scene. He's kind of inaugurated by John the Baptist, right? This kind of crazy guy who's preaching repentance in the wilderness and telling people to get baptized and that the kingdom is coming and that there's one who's coming whose, whose shoes he can't even untie. Uh, and then he sees Jesus coming and he points him out and he says, this is the one, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember? And Jesus bursts onto the scene and his, his public ministry as an adult starts. And what happens right away He's got crowds and crowds of people who follow him, but they're different. Like, they're not super religious, uh, uh, holy people. Those people are kind of angry with him. They don't like him. It's the, it's the, the, the tax collectors, the common fishermen, the, the non-Jewish people, uh, uh, drunkards, uh, prostitutes, uh, lepers, demon-possessed people, like all kinds of messed up people gravitate to this Jesus and his crowds and crowds of people, not only for what he said, but because of what he did. And he did things that people hadn't seen since like the time of Elisha, you know, back in the Old Testament. He's raising dead people. He's, he's able to control the weather. He's He's healing people of leprosy. He's casting demons out of people. He changes water into wine. I mean, he does things that nobody's ever seen. And so you have crowds and crowds of people. But you see right away he's making enemies. And he's making a lot of enemies. In particular, the religious people do not like him. They think he's an imposter. They think he's a liar. They call him a devil. They try to stone him. They try to throw him over a cliff. They, they try to trap him publicly with all these questions. And he always seems to have a, an answer that turns the tables on him. He's making enemies, and he's making enemies really, really fast. He's a polarizing figure. I mean, you either love him or you can't stand him. 
It's one or the other. He leaves people no option. And he lives his life this way. And then finally, at the end, of course, he's betrayed by one of his own, own people on his team who he specifically chose. And he's betrayed and he's given up and he's arrested. And he does not resist all of this that happens to him. I mean, if you think about the life of Jesus as a man, now, church people and Christian people say, well, he's, he's God, he's the son of God. Yes, yes, yes. But he's also human. He's also man at the same time. And we sometimes don't remember that. If you think of his life as a human, as a man, and you think of the amount of times that he took life in the face, if anybody had an excuse to say as life is, God is, it would be Jesus himself. I mean, he's hunted when he's born, when he is born, there are people hunting him down to try and take his life. I mean, he literally lives his life being slapped in the face over and over and over. He takes it over and over again. And yet he calls out on the cross after being beaten to a pulp by these Roman guards, after being nailed to this thing, after it says that in Luke as well that his, his sweat was as drops of blood. This is a condition we're told that's very rare, but when it happens, it makes the skin very, very, very sensitive. And he goes through a Roman flogging where there, I mean, it's, it's brutal what happens to this man. And he calls upon God one last time in his final breaths on this earth. And he says, Father, he can call on God as his personal father when he goes through that? I mean, if you're that criminal on the cross and you hear that and you believe that what he says is authentic, you're going, that is impossible. Well, the next words are even worse. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Imagine that. I mean, that is totally unnatural. That is completely counter, like, that is bizarre. He's actually asking God to forgive the people who are brutally uh, killing him at that moment. And in my view, I would, I would submit to you that this flipped the switch in that second criminal's mind as he heard this and he considered the words that this man is saying and he has an answer to the other man. The other man said, if you're the Christ, come down off the cross, save yourself and us if you're the Christ. And this man turns and he has an answer to that other man. And remember, Jesus is in the middle, so Jesus hears this conversation. He's got these guys in stereo, and this is what the man says. He says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? Like, he's the one who's supposed to, he's, he's the, the, the holy one. He has done nothing wrong, and you and I, we are criminals, and you are saying this to this man? You're asking him to save himself and you and me? Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. We've lived our lives this way. We're the criminals. This one here in the center, he is not. 
and you have the nerve to say to him, come down off the cross, save yourself and us. And, he, and, he, and the Bible says he rebuked him. He rebuked that unrepentant criminal. And he says, we are punished justly. He has done nothing wrong. And then he says these words to Jesus. Powerful, powerful passage only found in Luke. He says, Jesus, he, he looks at him. He takes his focus off the other criminal. And he looks at Jesus who's in the center. And he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when? You come into your kingdom. The, 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 the switch has flipped on. The faith switch has turned on. Because how can, how can he ask Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom if he's on a cross? Just, just you know, there's, we say today there's, there's two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes. Back then, three certainties in life. Death, taxes, and Roman crosses. Like Roman crosses, people don't get up off crosses. When they face the cross, that's it. Their life is over. This is why Jesus said, if anyone wants to come and follow me, let him take up his cross, Jesus says, and follow me. You've got to die to yourself is, is the lesson there. People knew when people took up crosses, it's lights out. That's Romans don't miss. And yet this man is saying, Jesus don't forget me. You don't forget me because you're a king and you've got a kingdom that's going to come. You remember me when you come in that kingdom. Don't forget me. It's, it's a powerful statement because this is a man who would be forgotten. This is a man who, again, the Romans would come up to him, break his legs in just a few moments and he, his body would be taken down from the cross. He'd be thrown into a, it would be thrown into a common grave uh, outside of the city of Jerusalem, a place called the Valley of, of Gehenna, and it would be lit on fire. The place was always burning with fire, and nobody would remember him. His, his name isn't even given to us in the text. And he says to Jesus, don't forget me. Everyone else will. But you remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he believes that somehow Jesus is going to beat death itself. The faith light has come on. He believes that Jesus is undeserving of this punishment. The faith light has come on. He believes that Jesus is a king and that a kingdom is going to come because of the power and the authority of Jesus. And yet Jesus is hanging there on this cross for his life. I mean, it, this man, the faith light has come on. And this is the response from Jesus. He says to the man, I tell you the truth in the old King James, verily, verily, I sayeth unto you. You know, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So the thief on the cross, the criminal on the cross, he says, down the road, I know that you've got a kingdom. Somehow you're going to beat death. And I, don't forget me when that happens. And Jesus gives him an answer that would have been startling. I tell you the truth today. Today. Yes, we're hanging here on these crosses. Yes, you're about to breathe your last breath and so am I. But I'm telling you today you will be with me not on these crosses but in paradise, in paradise. And you say, what the, how, how can that be? 
So the, what the Bible teaches, and, and Jesus would be thinking this as per especially the Old Testament, when people die, in, they don't just expire and, you know, the soul or spirit just goes to sleep. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the moment that you leave this earth, the moment that you breathe your last breath, the moment that your body dies, your soul, your spirit leaves. And it goes somewhere, and it goes somewhere consciously and aware, the soul or the spirit. And so the belief back then was that the people who were redeemed, the people who were forgiven by God, the people who were justified by God, the, the forgiven would go into this place called paradise. Sometimes it's called Abraham's bosom. If you know the story in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, Lazarus goes to this place of paradise, Abraham's bosom. And so this is what Jesus is referring to, but he's telling this man who's a hardened criminal before, before he dies, he's saying to him, you, sir, are justified before God. You, sir, are going to join me in just a few moments in that place, in the presence of God, as it were, in paradise. He's telling this man that the faith light has come on in his heart. It is a powerful, powerful statement. And, and this would have given great hope to the man as he's lying there, or, you know, there nailed to that cross and about to breathe his last breath. It would have given him hope. Can you imagine the confidence that Jesus has? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. I remember just, just in passing, I remember debating with some Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, some of you who know me well, you know that I'm, I like it when they come to my door. I don't tell them to leave, I tell them to come. Right? I remember debating with some Jehovah's Witnesses, and they had, the, they had the nerve to tell me that when Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, today you will be in, with me in paradise. What he's really saying is, today I tell you the truth. Someday over yonder, you'll be with me in paradise. As if a man who's being crucified, who's gasping for breath, is going to waste a word. No, he's saying to this man, your hope is in me for tomorrow, but I'm telling you, you can hope in me today. I'm telling you that today the kingdom that I'm going to inaugurate is going to start in your life. Today you will be with me in paradise. It's going to begin for you today, sir. Because you are justified before God. And this cross that I'm on and this torture that we're under, this is a momentary thing. And Jesus has such confidence, even though he's lying, it's an absolute mess. And he knows that in just a few moments, he will be in the presence of God with this man. And this, friends, is the hope of Easter. This is the conclusion of the matter. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. This means today you can be forgiven. This means today you can be redeemed. Today God can remember you. You don't have to wait until you die. Today you can experience life with him that is eternal. Today he can start to reveal his kingdom in your heart. Today he can justify you. Today he can make you his child. 
And this is because he's alive today. This is the hope and the glorious hope we have in the resurrection. Are you awake today? Sorry if it's just me and I'm only listening to myself. I'm enjoying myself, okay, if you'll just allow me. This is, this is a powerful, powerful truth, friends. You've got to understand something. Just because your life is hard, it doesn't mean that God is hard. Just because your circumstances are difficult, that doesn't mean, well, God is bad. God can't be trusted. No, there's something to come. There is a kingdom that's coming that Jesus is building even now. As he continues to transform the lives of people, he builds that kingdom one heart, one life at a time. You can experience that today. It can start for you today. Or you can be like the other criminal and say, ah, as God is or as life is, God is. If he's all-powerful and he's holy and he's just and he's all these things, then why doesn't he come down off of his cross, as it were, and fix my life? No, thank you. I'm not interested. Okay, don't leave it there. You're not giving a chance to God to reveal himself. He transcends your circumstances, my friends. There are people in this room, and I know some of your personal stories, and some of you in this room today are going through really, really tough circumstances. But you realize that you're able to do that because you've got Christ with you. You've got one with you who, who took life in the face and still called upon God as his personal father. And you can too.